0: Welcome to a Pulp Event podcast, brought to you by the Pulp Net, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event podcast, a panel consisting of writers Christopher Paul Carey, Ron Chandler, Noir Hayes, Craig mcdonald and Will Murray discuss writers who are bringing the flavor of the pulp magazines into the 21st century. Writer William Patrick Maynard moderates. The talk was recorded on Friday, August 5th, 2022, at Pulp Fest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. William Patrick Maynard begins.
1: Okay, to my left, your right, Craig McDonald, is the creator and author of the Edgar nominated Hector Lasseter series that combines Craig's dual interest in historical research into the 20th century's leading lights. With his journalistic passion for the most gruesome serial killers in the Midwest's history during the same period. Uh, Craig's polished prose has a decided literary bent that, like Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler before him, successfully crosses over between the mainstream and pulp genre, highbrow and lowbrow, with equal measures of success. Please welcome Mr. Craig McDonald. Okay, to the left of Will, in between Will and Chris, Noir Hayes is the young author of the apocalyptic thriller Within Cessation and the Razor series, a decidedly modern pulp fiction series. Noir combines emotionally complex characters with riveting and sometimes bloodthirsty scenes of unflinching violence. She embodies the universality of pulp as visceral thrillers that readers relate to in spite of, or sometimes because of, the nightmarish world they depict so realistically. Please welcome Noir Hayes. And in between Will and Craig, Mr. Ron Chandler. Ron's ecological, multicultural, family-friendly fiction is also very much the product of 21st century pulp fiction. Ron is equally at home with short fiction as well as full-length novels. His short fiction has been published in over 30 literary magazines. His novels include Battle to Save the Bay, Ghost Riders of Cumberland Gap, and Neptune's Garden. Please welcome Ron Chandler. Okay, there will be no more outbursts from Mr. Chonko. We will now proceed. Um, first, uh, I would like to start with uh, with Will and with Chris. Because of this group, you're the ones with the closest connection, I would say, to the past, for for uh, of Pulp Fiction's past, and bringing that legacy going forward. Um, Will, I'll have you start off. I'd like you to approach this from the standpoint, not just of what you've accomplished, but what you yet hope to accomplish with your fiction.
2: What I yet hope to accomplish? Yes. I don't know that I have much more that I need to accomplish. Um, well, you know, um, I think my professional novel writing career started with um, the time I found a Doc savage outline and turned it into a manuscript that didn't get published for 11 years. And in between that, I started ghosting the destroyer Paperback series for Warren Murphy and Richard Saper and ended up doing 40 of those. And when that cycle ended in my professional career, I sort of did things here and there until the opportunity to license Doc Savage came up again, and I started The Wild Adventures of Doc Savage, which very quickly snowballed into having King Kong crossover, doing Tarzan novel, having King Kong crossover with Tarzan, having Dark Savage. Savage crossover with the Shadow and then doing the Spider and all those crossovers and whatever else, I can't remember right now and so the wild adventures of Doc Savage sort of spun out of control in a good way as far as what else I'd like to do well, I don't know that I'll get to do them but I would love to have the Shadow meet Sherlock Holmes, I would love to have Doc Savage meet Tarzan officially Uh, I'd like to do a couple more Docs I'm not sure they'll let me uh, but there isn't much more that I really, really, really w- want to do, amazingly enough, but, you know, I think I'm working on my 74th and 75th novel now, so, mm-hmm. you know, and I've had some brilliant luck in the, just in the last decade of all these licenses falling into my lap and all these crossover potentials the song of which people thought were never going to happen. So I'm not going to rest on my laurels, but at this point in my life... Um, if I'm going to do something, it should have some impact, or have it should be on the level of some of those books. Does that answer the
1: question? Sure. Okay. Good. All right. Now, Chris, as the other resident kid made good, who uh, who took the fiction that he loved as a child and has turned it into reality with a bit of alchemy and what will is allowed to call luck, which isn't luck. Uh, uh, what about you? You certainly have a lot on your shoulders with steering and crafting at Grace Burroughs Incorporated, but you're still very much a creative author. What do you have yet that you hope to accomplish?
3: Let's see. Um, I've got of um, <sighs> So... Um, at Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated, when I came on board um, in 2019, uh, we started what we call the Edgar Rice Burroughs Universe series where we're trying to correspond to the canon of Edgar Rice Burroughs, um, but also keep the new books in that series uh, consistent with one another. And that's kind of the thing that my life's work at the moment, because um, it just it's all-consuming. It's like uh, I'm working with so many different authors and all, and I'm, I'm put in sort of the director's role, which is interesting because I'm I'm used to being more just writing on my own previous to that, but I've had to step in and sort of act as a, a director, you know, and um, uh, it's interesting because I get to, I'm still writing in that, I have a, I have a new book coming out um, in uh, in that, that series, but so I'm still creating and all in the weekends, um, but Uh, it's been a new experience to sort of, um, I get to play with it, but using other people, basically. And it's a a very strange experience. Like, Wynn and I just had a conversation about his next book that he's writing. And, you know, I got to bounce ideas. He's telling me what he wants, and I get to say, well, what about this? And what about that? And I'm not telling you to do it, but I'm saying, would this work with you? Would this be something you want to do with it and it creates this synergy between all of us who are working in this series together, um, that it's like nothing I've ever really experienced before. So it's like it's like the ne- the next higher level in the in the you know uh, the macroverse <laughs> or whatever you know. Um, so that's been what I've been working on, and uh, and I really am trying to. I mean, this panel is very appropriate to what I'm doing because I'm trying to bring it to... I'm trying to... One of the things that's very, been very important to me, I'm big on tradition, so I've always liked tradition. Some people frown on tradition and it's like they think it's like just holding back things. But I don't see it that way. I see it as a growth. I think that you can't, I can't, you can't just throw away the past. So I try to uh, embrace the future but not dishonor or throw away the past. And that's what we're trying to do in the Egg Burroughs universe. And um, to opt uh, to, so I'm not trying, I do not want to alienate the hardcore original fans. I want them to be interested and invested in it. But I also want to bring new people into it as well. And I think Edgar Rice Burroughs, if he had the longevity elixir that Tarzan had, um, he would have continued to do that throughout his career. He, he changed as he went along. he, and he also um, continued to create new characters and new worlds all the way to when he stopped writing. And um, that's why people who are the sort of the hardcore Burroughs fans say they look back on it sort of with a um, perspective of nostalgia because like we read this stuff when we were like 13 or 10 or younger, you know. And so there's this aspect of nostalgia, but when you think about how it was for E.R.B. when he was writing, it was all new. Nobody knew, like the idea of crossing over Tarzan and Polizzi. That's crazy, you know, um, radical, you know. And so we're, tr- tr- I'm trying to move it forward. It might seem like this is some of this crazy stuff that we're doing, but I think E.R.B. would have played with his world, you know, his worlds and universes and stuff. So, so I, I have, I'll just for a moment. So this is the thing that I've but I want to do it. Victory, Harbin, Fires a Taylor. She's a new character. She's ba- she's descended from the canon, but she's totally new. She's related to characters from, from the canon, uh, but she's totally new. And it kind of, this book will sort of embody my vision for what I, you know, where I want to bring things, so... Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered the question. No,
1: it does. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like everyone is kind of at ease with me. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) I I know I kept questions from you. Um, (laughs) But part of it was I wanted it to be natural. I didn't want it to seem like people are watching an infomercial. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we've started with the heritage, if you want to say, writers who are keeping alive what mattered to them in childhood that still inspires them today and not from a public domain standpoint, but from a licensed standpoint, that has to be earned and continue to be proven to keep it relevant and still financially viable. Um, from there, I'd like to segue to Craig, because you're also very much rooted in the 20th century, where most of us were born. <laughs> but, um, at the same time, you are not dealing with licensed properties, you're bringing your own spin to it. So if you could talk about your approach to fiction, as well as where you want to go from here.
4: Yeah, I I use historical figures primarily um, in the Hector Lasser series. He's the only fictional character, for the most part, in any of the 15 books, about 15 books now. And um, the idea was, basically, he's a black mask pulp writer, and... More in the Raymond Chandler-Dashiell Hammett mode, in that he segues from the pulps. He's actually (laughs) secretly writing for Black Mask when he's in 1920s Paris with Hemingway, wanting to be a literary writer. And everyone in Paris in the 20s wanted to be a literary writer. So it's kind of his dark secret that all his money is really coming from publication back in the states. It's not being seen by all of his literary peers in Paris because they just don't sell pulps there. And using a lot of writers uh, to sort of examine a lot of the history and culture that were going on at the same time with the pulps through Ernest Hemingway, who essentially tried to be published in the pulps, or uh, popular magazines with some very young fiction, but it was still more or less in his voice. Um, Gertrude Stein, the, the most infuriating modernist writer, if you've tried to read anything of hers, it's Virtually impossible to do. But she was a a mystery fan and actually was uh, very obsessed with pulp writers, particularly Dashiell Hammond. So I've used the Hector Lasseter character to basically weave through fictional, or through uh, the 20th century literary arc. Um, And he's mostly acquainted with other writers. So you have Ernest Hemingway, he encounters Lester Dent, the Doc Savage uh, creator more or less, Walter B. Gibson, uh, Ian Fleming, uh, James Bond, so you, you kind of get a history of publishing through that character.
1: Where do you want to take it?
4: Oh, he, oh I ended it. Yo, I knew you ended <laughs> but yeah. you right. But no, part no, part. now I've started another character. It, actually, it's a, a very metafictional um, series that's focused on classic pulp, Um, but moving it out of the 1930s it's probably heresy but I think embalming pulp in the 30s is a very um, very limited in that I I came out of journalism uh, recently and changed careers I spent a lot of time in Gannett every quarter you waited to see if you were going to be laid off I know what circling the drain looks like and feels like and um, Pulp has to move into the 21st century. I think it can retain much of what it is that we value in it and love about it. But if you look at the the number of movies that have been made using pulp and IP characters, the only one that really has ever gotten any kind of financial traction is the first couple of Indiana Jones movies, and that's because Harrison Ford was in them. Um, and... You are dealing with an attriting audience. We have to build a new audience. You have to reach younger readers. Attrition inevitably leads to extinction. So my goal would be to take these kind of characters and put them in a 21st century context without losing their, their character. I don't like insulting other writers, and I'm not doing it in this case, but I mean, I read the James Patterson Shadow novel, and that was <laughs> an act of courage and, uh, and self, <laughs> self-torture, and I don't expect the Doc Savage to be any better. But Patterson doesn't write them, so I didn't insult James Patterson. I so. <laughs> <laughs> good enough. That was <laughs> <so hard. clears throat>
1: um, and then Ron and Mar, I have you for last deliberately, because I think both of you are first and foremost simply writers who didn't approach it that you were writing pulp fiction. You found that a a pulp con can actually be a good market for you. So Ron, in particular with your fiction, with what I've sampled of it, I like the fact that thematically, as much as you're doing fiction that can be read by young adults as well as adults, you're aimed at the specific issues of today. And I think that puts you in an interesting light in that perspective. So do do you want to talk about your fiction a bit?
5: Um, Yes, Uh, thank you for the question. I want to go back to the beginning. When I started writing, I was in a writer's group in Baltimore, Maryland, and my first mentor was a man named Richard Green, who wrote novels in the 1960s. And I'm sure that he read Pulp Fiction, and I began by writing detective stories, police procedurals, children's stories, and uh, science fiction stories. I read magazines, descended from the pulp fictions, analog science fiction, and um, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, and so forth. So I do have a. My beginning was kind of like grounded through pulp fiction, but not by reading the uh, Pulp Fiction magazines themselves and then later on I uh, took uh, courses at the Writers' Center in Bethesda and developed a more cosmopolitan uh, view of literature. So the core is Pulp Fiction plus this other stuff and um, what, the future?
1: Yeah, did you want to talk about your actual work? Yeah,
5: um, well, I, what, what I write is uh, nature-inspired stories and what I intend to do, one of the things I intend to do is right now I have a novella called Ghost Riders of Cumberland Gap. I would like to make that a trilogy. And I hope, last year I went down there to do some research in Virginia, and they had flooding, and this year they have flooding in, in Kentucky, but I hope to get down there, and do more research, and maybe in a year or two come out with a sequel to that. And I also intend to write Another uh, book of stories nature inspires stories for the whole family
1: Okay, thank you now, noir um, this has been uh, this is good in the sense that both chris and and Craig set you up with saying, if pulp is to survive it needs to reach a younger audience you 're a young writer today, obviously. Um, I don't think you really knew Pulp outside of Tarantino when you right. started writing, yeah. um, which isn't a bad place to start. It's certainly rooted in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, what you bring to the fore with your fiction, um, which I tried to capture in uh, in my introduction for you. I'm curious, obviously we talked earlier, you're planning a third in your Razor series, and I don't yes. know if that will be a trilogy or if you... <laughs> Wanted to continue going. And also, if you could speak to what other fiction you hope to do, if you have any solid ideas.
6: Great. Um, Yeah, so what's interesting is sort of at the end of Razorblades, I put end of book one, but I sort of never anticipated it to be past Razorblades. And um, sort of I was just going through the motions of horrendous writer's block, and all of a sudden some of the characters were just sort of waiting in the background, and they were like, so are you going to finish this or what so that's sort of how the sequel came into play and it's just like I have always sort of listened to the characters that come to me I'm always super character driven so even if their thoughts their feelings don't align with me that's sort of what I want to put out I just want to tell their stories they're the ones coming to me they trust me to tell their story so that's sort of how I do it and it's sort of like what you said it was never really I never started writing saying like oh this is going to be pulp or this is going to be noir fiction it's just sort of like I wrote their story and sort of started to figure out where they fit and it's like reviews started coming in calling it pulp fiction and I was like oh so that's (laughs) what this is I guess and that's just sort of where it stemmed from there and um yeah so what I want to write in the future it's like I do sort of, the ending of Razorblade sequel, Razor's Edge, has pushed a potential for new characters and a whole new storyline to sort of break out of whatever's going on in my brain right now. Um, and I just sort of write what comes to me and whoever comes to me, and I'm just like, that's what we're going to write, and we're going to get it out of there. So.
1: Okay. Now that actually kind of sparked something I didn't anticipate discussing, but which is probably worthwhile. Um, you, Craig, and Chris, both speak of the, the methodical research that you approach to your work. No um, more what you're describing is much more like automatic writing, and that's a conversation Will and I have pat- had several times in the past, um, as well as channeling, and that's something Chris and Will could discuss. Um, some of this is just the, the sheer gift of storytelling but it's also a craft you have to keep honing. But being able to be receptive and open to the stories that are just coming and the characters are speaking to you, I think that's a a great point that you make. So I'm going to actually step back to Ron. Ron, do your stories, are that obviously you're doing a lot of research, you talked about that with your trips to Virginia and to Kentucky. Are the stories something that are just coming through you almost like a where you're just receiving them like an antenna? Or are you really going through the rigors of plotting as well?
5: Okay, I'm I'm going to go back to the beginning here, when I first started writing, and I was a collector of stories and a collector of CDs that had songs. And whenever I read a story or heard a song, you know, I felt, well, that's not it didn't speak to me. It wasn't something inside me. I didn't feel that that was uh, uh, what I wanted. And I realized that if I wanted a specific story or a song, like a poem, I would have to write it myself. So that's how I started writing. And then by going through different phases, starting, I started out writing detective stories, then police procedurals, children's stories, and science fiction. And finally I settled on writing... Uh, stories that take place in the outdoors. Uh, a lot of them come from personal experience, it, it, personal experiences. Some of them come from uh, experiences friends tell me about where there's a central event that takes place that I think could be expand, expanded into a real story. The uh, Ghost Writers of Cumberland Gap. That story, that's a short story, but I liked it so much and for some reason it sequentially just grew from there. So in that way, there was a, a muse somewhere that gave me the rest of the story after the first two chapters.
1: Okay. And, and Will, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier, and I mean no disrespect because I have all the respect in the world for Will, as, uh, as if nothing else for the influence he's meant to me. But uh, you said, you used the word luck to describe what dropped in your lap. And I don't believe that's true and I suspect you don't either. I think we're chosen in some ways. It's just whether everyone in this room could be chosen to do things. It's whether we're receptive to it. And I use the antenna for a reason because that's why I thought of with what Noir was saying where the characters are asking her, are you going to do more with me or not? Um, for that actual um, process of, of Invention that comes with creativity, not the crafting part. um, How much of that is still alive for you, where the stories just come through you? A lot.
2: But I'm also crafting and creating. I tend not to plot. Mm -hmm. I tend, or not to plot far ahead, because I, I let the characters run free within certain. Restraints. Uh, I'd like a book not to be a thousand pages long. Mm. But most characters don't need a thousand pages to go through their, you know, their their motions. It's difficult for me to talk about this because I don't analyze my own process. I know that there's an analytical part of me that, you know, works through a plot or works through a book. There's a there's a spiritual part of me that's operating in a very high frequency, uh, there's the, the channeling part, which I will say loosely but not necessarily loosely, mm-hmm. that when I'm writing a dark savage I have Lester Dent's vocabulary, you know, at my command, when I'm writing a spider I have Norval Page's vocabulary at my command, I do refresh myself by picking up one of their books or some of their books and skimming them to capture specific words you know, that because I, I want to, you know, not just rely on what passes through me, but I want to hone it because I always rewrite my books and polish them. So, uh, a Lester Den vocabulary, a Gryce Burroughs vocabulary, a normal page vocabulary, there are a lot of common words, especially since they were contemporaries more or less. But there are a lot of very specific types of words that all of them favored and none of them you know, used. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, none of them, there were a lot of words that are unique to these writers, mm-hmm. you know, as there are words unique to any writer. Um, so, you know, it's, you know, the book I'm working on now is a sequel to Tarzan, Conqueror of Mars. I, I was going to start it in um, Christmas, and I was just buried in other assignments and other things and I started in March and I wrote four paragraphs and I just couldn't get the machinery going, which is unusual for me. But it was also the pressure of other things that needed to be squared away. But when I got back to it at the end of May, I think it was, I wrote almost all of it in 30 days. Mm -hmm. It just flowed. And that's with, uh, in between, there was a lot of rethinking of some of the approaches to the book because I I, I wasn't completely satisfied with some of what I wanted to do. And there was something I'd written down that I'd forgotten and I came across and I said, Well this is perfect. I'm glad I I'm glad I accidentally found this again because this is like five years ago I thought of this idea. Mm-hmm. So um, that you know it was like I was stuck on that until I could get and in between I was rereading Tarzan's and, 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 and John Carter's. But it was like I couldn't tap into that frequency. Mm-hmm. But when I did, it was all there. Mm-hmm. You know, it was all there. It was just effortless.
1: And, and I didn't want to start with that with you because I know um, it's the kind of thing that can either win or alienate quickly an audience. But noir came to it so naturally I didn't want to bypass it because writing is more just... It's more than just craft work. It is the, that extra something... That comes through creatively.
2: Ryerson Johnson, who was one of Lester Dent's friends and ghostwriters, used to say that there were two kinds of pulp writers the intuitive writer and the mechanical writer. Mm-hmm. The mechanical writer plotted the way a carpenter makes, you know, uh, essentially uh, designs for a home. Uh, and the intuitive guy, all he needs is a title or an editor to say, we need a jewel robbery story or we need a Western set in Texas mm-hmm. uh, below the Rio Grande or something. And fine, he goes away and he writes it, it, you know, and he didn't have an idea for that story until the editor gave him a title or showed him a cover that had been painted or printed a proof and said, we need a story to go around this cover. And he just went off and wrote it. Mm -hmm. Uh, A a mechanical writer could do that too. I am a mechanical intuitive writer. Mm -hmm. I do both. You know, sometimes simultaneously, but often just juggling.
1: I, I think Noir and Ron described the same process, yeah, yeah. quite honestly. Chris, I wanted to talk with you and with Craig next on that. Um, Chris, I, I'm curious, you know, I certainly know the pedigree, the shared background so many of us have of discovering that fiction at a particular time in our life. But I wondered how much both your your experience with Pathfinder and, and honestly with... Uh, With Seton Hill, how much those two aspects have changed
3: and developed you creatively? Um, In terms of working at Paizo and the Pathfinder role playing game and Starfinder role playing games, um, uh, that showed me the process of working with a team of people. So when I'm doing it, it helped me a lot going into my current job Mm -hmm. as director of publishing and sort of the creative director of the ERP Universe. And so I got to, like, Paizo was an insanely creative team of people, uh, and, and I got to see how they all operated, and I got to be a part of that team, and work worked there for 10 years as a senior editor, um, and so that, that influenced that aspect. So it allowed me, it gave me this the management structure, like, basically of how, how I'm going to, how I would work with people and work with creatives and work with freelancers and make it all work, uh, that was... I wouldn't have been able to do this job as effectively as I, I have without that, but so that that would be there. As far as creative, I don't think it really impacted me much because I already had my own creative thing going and um, I kind of turned off the role-playing game fantasy stuff when I would go on the weekends and write my own stuff. And I was able to walk away with it, walk away from it and do that. Um, what was the other, oh, Seton Hill. Seton Hill, um, really was uh that's my graduate i went to it i got my master's degree in writing popular fiction from C. Hill, um, and that really that was really the mechanical stuff honestly mm-hmm. i mean i already had the creative drive and all that i actually already knew a lot about writing when i went there but i learned certain little things not to do or to do better you know what i mean and i feel like Honestly, I feel like after my first year, I got all that down. And it was pretty much, that's what I learned. And uh, it did have some, they did teach some of the business aspects of writing, which was helpful. But um, as far as that that goes, I did want to speak to the channeling bit. Yeah, please. But I've always viewed, um, like, I think that any successful writer has to have both sets. You have to have the mechanical Mm -hmm. and then the the creative aspect of it. I've always viewed it like... um, For myself personally, it's sort of like a almost like a blurring of your vision when you go when you're doing the creative stuff. You sort of have to zone the real world out, and I've compared it to like it's like a shamanic experience. You're basically you enter another world. You're there when you're doing the creative aspect of it, whether it's the outline. I mean, sometimes the outlining. You know, not just like you can be creative in your outlining too. and then you and then you come back to the real world you know basically and then you're you're like and that's why sometimes when you go back and you look at the writing that you did in the past you're like wow i wrote that it's cuz like you got it from another world mm-hmm. or something that's how i knew it i don't know what the, the real Physics of that is, you know, if, you know, if that's just a, something going on in the brain, or if it's a spiritual thing, or what. But that's the experience for me. if
2: That's how you feel it. That's how it is.
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well said. Yeah. Um,
1: one of the things I know Will and I talked about probably ten years ago in Chicago was the strange thing when your subconscious has already solved a problem before you came to it, and you come to the problem in the story that you didn't plot. And as you go through and read it, suddenly it's there crystal clear. And it could only have been planned earlier, but the conscious part of you was unaware of it. It is, to a degree, a dream state yeah. that, that takes it through.
2: I, I want to m- make a comment along that line, the, the spooky part of it. Uh, this doesn't happen with any of my novels now, but when I was writing Destroyer, which is four books a year, Mm -hmm. You know, and they, they were long books, some of them. Sometimes they were alternating 60 and 90, and then sometimes they were 75 and 90, I forget. But I would go through this process. Since the editors didn't want an outline, they just wanted a few paragraphs to give to an art director and to give to the sales department. They just wanted a paragraph or two or three or a page what the book was about. So you basically had the concept of the book, and it was wide open beyond that. And I went through this almost every destroyer for many years. I would sort of write from the seat of my pants, get the story going. Uh, There would be, there would be prep, you know, I would have a lot of time sometimes to think about what I would do with the book because we'd sign a four book contract every year. And I would get to the middle of the book somewhere, and I was writing these books in six weeks flat. I'd get in the middle of the book somewhere and I'd say, oh my God, I've gone off the rails. This isn't where the book was supposed to go. This isn't where I envisioned it was going to go. I need to stop and take stock. And that was good because you stop and go back and you polish and edit and clean things up and you didn't lose time. But I would do this book after book after book saying, I got to back up, kill four chapters, and depart from chapter you know, 20 in the direction it should go to. And I would agonize and I would rationalize and say, well, maybe I just need to kill three chapters. And then then would get down to two. Then we get down to one. And then I would say, you know what? I think I could work with this. And I would finish the book. You know, exactly as written in terms of what I'd started, but not as what I'd planned. And, you know, I don't know why I always went through that, but I always went through that, and I always solved. But the part that was spooky, because in, in discovering you've gone left when you should have gone right, or, you've, or the book characters in Paris when they're supposed to be in the North Pole, which really changes the trajectory of the book um, I would discover time and time again some incidental character or some incidental incident at some point in the part that I had written that I wanted to discard or maybe not part of what I wanted to discard it turned to be critical to the resolution of the book but I didn't know it at the time, it would almost always be there in the spooky feeling I had which I don't put credence in necessarily is the book had already been written I was just trying to remember it as best I could without remembering it and Mm -hmm. just trying to like you know follow some invisible outline that Mm -hmm. was in my head but that's part of the spooky part of this part of the spooky part of any creativity is you know where is this stuff coming from
1: Ron mentioned songs and um... I'm, I'm not a particular fan of the artist, but it's a, a song whose lyric has always resonated with me um, because it's about the creative process. Running Down a Dream by Tom Petty has the line that seems like that running down a dream is that chasing an idea and trying to bring it to the forefront when, as you say, it's already written itself. And I think that's really kind of the key to the creative process. Now. What I liked about this last round of conversation was we took the two gentlemen who are working with licensed properties and have taken them out of the obvious comfort zone of discussing someone else's characters that they bring to life and embody, but talking about their own personal approach, both methodical and intuitive. Now, Noir and Craig have a darker side to their fiction. Um, yet neither of them strike me as dark people. Um, and Craig, I wondered how much your newspaper background played a role in your approach to writing or if what made you a good newspaper man was the fact that you had that love of history of connecting things, connecting literature, film, high and lowbrow and then tying in with some of the dark crimes, solved and unsolved, of the same era? No connection.
4: <laughs> no, I mean, I, I actually, I was majoring simultaneously in journalism and English literature. Mm-hmm. And both departments were like, you know, put both feet in one pool. They aren't the same thing, and it really is true. I mean, with journalism, you're basically, you're, Joseph Campbell said you're paid to be educated in public, you have to be kind of a master of everything from finances to rezoning and all this boring stuff, and you can't you can't be very precious about it. You can't be very artistic about it because you just have to hit deadlines. So if it helped me in any sense, journalism, writing fiction, it's just parking yourself, not having to have a special window or a special pen. You put me anywhere. You can put me in a, a noisy room with 30 reporters and three televisions running, and I've done it and having to edit things that can get you sued into the ground and you just have to do it so there's that um, kind of going into the conversation you you talked about the uh, subconscious mm-hmm. um, you don't ever really write a book you write a book, you think you wrote and then every reader becomes your collaborator so nobody really reads the same book and Hemingway talked about um he would write up to a point and then he would stop when he knew what the next thing was going to be. You, you get that from pulp writers like Gibson and I think Dent maybe too. Of You stop in the middle of a sentence so you don't have to cold start the engine and you know where you're going next. But Hemingway talked about never emptying your well and talked about the fact that you have story problems, you have things you can't quite resolve. His idea, you go out and get drunk and catch a marlin and go to bed and wake up the next day and the subconscious has done the job for you. That really is a thing. And when you read literary writing where you have light motifs and running themes and all of that, that's not really built in I believe. I think if you really outline that that heavily, outlines will, will kill characterization quicker than anything. And it really is a, a kind of combination of Starting knowing your end knowing a few set pieces and everything else should be improvisation. It's kind of like a DNA double helix Um, Character drives plot and plot should evoke character and and that's what I try to do I I wish i had written journalism in a more artful way, but the practicality of it is it just doesn't afford itself to that Especially now when you have three people doing the job that
1: 12 used to do. Okay, I still got what I wanted, though. I got you to talk about. Yeah, the I gonna, more than the methodical yeah, side. Yeah, I, um, They're just
4: different disciplines, completely. At least in my experience.
1: I so. want to come back to Noir and then Ron as we wrap up. Noir. Um, one of the things I find interesting is having learned that you dance, mm-hmm. um, and I contrast it, and obviously, showing my age. Um, my youngest daughter is probably your age, and. I've had daughters who have danced, I have a daughter who loves, she's a wedding photographer and her success there is because she focuses on nature and not the people um, as the actual subject and so that people are so comfortable with the pictures. Um, She paints and it's always nature. But when she writes fiction, which is what she's going to school for, much like Chris, Um, her fiction is this disturbing detective stuff that has none of the peace that her other artistic side had. And I was curious if that's something that, does your dance make sense to you as a writer, or does it seem like they're two opposite sides of you?
6: Um, Honestly, it sort of goes hand-in-hand in it that I am um I danced for so long just to be an escape so I'm a very shy and reserved person I would say very quiet like my roots are in ballet and being like a bunhead and stuff and having to dance characters outside of my norm and sort of make them my own so that sort of bleeds into my writing a little bit where it's I'm writing characters that are outside of my norm and not Like me and just sort of becoming what I need to. So they sort of are separate, but also the same in it that they're both like a creative escape that I can go to all the time. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Ron, your fiction again. I I see it so much as so driven by what I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are the issues that are so important to you? the ecological concerns, multiculturalism and above all and all else family. I think family and creating treating people decently is probably a huge part of what drives you the same way as you want nature and and all life treated well. Is that fair to say? Is that part of what drives the fiction that comes out of you?
5: Thank you for saying that. Uh... Well, my first goal is just to entertain the reader. My uh, next goal, I guess, is to send a message. And I love nature, and all I'm doing is writing stories about people and nature, basically. And if, if people get more out of that, I'm grateful.
1: Okay. One of the things I think is apparent from every single person here is all of us are introverts, um, who you know are twister in the pretzel shapes as we answer these questions, and it was, uh, it's kind of fun to me. I had uh, Chris come to me earlier as well as uh, two gentlemen who are doing the next panel with me with some measure of dread of what I may put them through up here, and um, uh, what I've always tried to do when I do these panels is bring out what's common both for the people on the panel as well as for the people in the audience who have a creative side that um, they either haven't brought fully to the fore or is just what drives you as a a listener of music, a viewer of film, or a reader of books. And and it's to understand that instead of, a lot of what I heard on the 50 years panel is the, uh, the fact that everyone wants to always put labels on things and put pulp in a box and define you know, when Pulp Cons started, they were sci-fi pulp cons. And then it broadened. And today, when you look at what we have here, or what Windy City has, there's as much to capture all of the, the whole spectrum of pulp. And when you look at this, um, and when you think even to those writers, they weren't necessarily in the mode of thinking, I am a pulp writer. Um, many of them, like a Hammond and Chandler, wanted to get out of that. A lot of what today, when we look back at the fiction of a century ago, like a sax um, who was not a pulp writer, who was in the slicks, we call it pulp because that's what it is to us now. Yet he would have taken a front to that with uh, an unwarranted arrogance. Um, and today, the Library of America would call Hammett or Lovecraft some of the best examples of writing of the last century. Um, The boxes you put on things. You know, I've got a daughter that gets labeled a hipster. Um, There are people, she has friends who get labeled goths, and people want to say, that's why you do what you do. And none of it is really valid. The labels aren't valid. What it is is people, a community, and the fact that you throw this as pulp what we've really done is show a, a reverence for the past, a reverence for a better world that is simpler, that acknowledges the flaws. And when we come together as a community, it's this little slice of utopia, where despite infighting, despite hurt feelings that occasionally come in anytime you have human beings together, it's a, it's a group that reaches out as creative, remembers the past, and really does their best to preserve a step forward and building a better future for us all. So that's all I've got. <laughs> yeah.
0: You've been listening to a pulp event podcast brought to you by the pulp net, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at the net also look for the pulp net on facebook and on twitter thank you for listening and keep reading the pulps this pulp event podcast is copyright 2022 by william p lampkin all rights reserved